Good morning again. If you have a Bible, could you turn to Acts chapter 27? And if you don't have a Bible, um, you can grab one of the Bibles under the chairs in front of you, and you can find Acts 27 on page 909. I'll be reading there in a minute. If you're looking in Acts and uh, you look at the next page, you'll see that we're almost done. Uh, It'll be 28 Sundays over about a year. Uh, It'll wrap up next Sunday. And here's where we are in in um, in the book of Acts. Uh, It's a story of the early church under the leadership of the apostles, and um, more than half of the book is spent describing the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He has spent the better part of the previous decade of his life proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ on missionary journeys throughout Syria, modern-day Turkey, Macedonia, and Greece. And he's back in Jerusalem where the religious leaders are so opposed to him that he gets thrown in prison. He's uh, held by the Roman guard, brought to trial on the coast in Caesarea. If we could see this map, uh, you can see on the bottom right, Jerusalem and Caesarea on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, while under guard in Caesarea, he appeals to Caesar. That's his right as a Roman citizen. He doesn't want to go back to Jerusalem to be tried because his opponents are too fierce. He appeals to Caesar. That means Paul is put on a ship sailing for Rome. But it's late in the season to be safely sailing on the open seas, especially back in the day. And we're told it's uh, past the Day of Atonement, which was Yom Kippur. In the year 59 AD, the likely uh, date of this sailing, Yom Kippur would have been October 5th. It's past that. The season is short. It's not safe. Paul warns the soldiers that they should spend the winter on the island of Crete, right in the middle of the map, but they decide to press on. We pick up the action in verse 13. Listen carefully. These are God's words. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they were run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. 
Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't, even eat, you haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, show us the glory of Jesus through church history, through Acts 27, through your spirit today, speaking freshly to our hearts and minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing we'll look at is suffering and the sea. A little bit of cultural background here is relevant. The Jewish people were landlubbers. They were not seafarers. They were not mariners. And so the Apostle Paul was an exception as he uh, had frequent flyer miles or frequent cruiser miles, hopping from island to this location to the next uh, by boat and ship on his missionary journeys, traveling for the better part of 10 years. And it's no surprise when he lists in 2 Corinthians 11 all of the horrible experiences that he's endured, he lists among uh, those experiences three different shipwrecks that he's survived. This would be number four. In a few chapters earlier, Paul had been in prison where, when the Lord spoke to him at night and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Last week, we said it was part of God's grand plan to bring uh, Paul, yes, in chains, uh, but carrying the gospel into the heart of the greatest empire of the world at that time in Rome. And we wonder, isn't that enough drama? The Apostle Paul finally getting caught. I said Javert has caught Jean Valjean in the end. We're in the end game now. Isn't that enough drama? The Apostle Paul is caught. He's in chains. He's going to, uh, to, to Rome to meet Caesar. Um, that the, the apostles and the leaders of the church are, are wondering, what now? Are we next? You could almost picture Paul saying in his prayer, Lord, with all due respect, I'm doing your will. I'm obeying you. I'm enduring this suffering and chains. Couldn't you protect the ship? Couldn't you cause that storm to blow out the other way? Couldn't you bring me there efficiently without causing loss of cargo and profit to the owners of the ship and all these other people's lives that are torn up? And it's interesting that Luke, the author of Acts, as he's nearing the end of Acts, uh, uh, the book of Acts, as he's down to his last piece of papyrus parchment, needing to fit all that he wants to say and preserve according to God's Spirit, he sees fit to include all of these details. I've only read half of them. He includes all these details of suffering at sea. Why so important? Again and again... Throughout Scripture, not just the New Testament, we see that the road to glory is littered with suffering. It's not because God needs to make a point and show everyone who's boss. 
It's not because He uh, requires penance to be done for worshipers to prove themselves worthy of His attention. It's not that He's not powerful enough to intervene and do something in the interests of His people. The road to glory is littered with suffering because God's people follow after a Savior who was called the suffering servant by the prophet Isaiah 800 years before Jesus was even born. The road to glory is littered with suffering because this is the path that Jesus Himself took. And suffering, like it or not, lies at the heart of biblical Christianity. It lies at the heart of the good news called the gospel. Any presentation of the gospel that reduces or minimizes or sweeps under the rug the reality of our lives that includes pain and suffering and even death itself is is like a big sugar rush. There might be this big um, surge of spiritual energy, but then there's a crash. And the crash comes soon after when you face the reality of of, uh, a broken world without promises of get-out-of-jail-free cards constantly. Often that kind of gospel presentation that is free from any suffering and pain and death is a false gospel. It points falsely to a God who is more of a genie that protects His people than a God who has entered this broken world in the person of His Son in order to suffer and to die on the cross of Calvary. Because otherwise, Jesus' suffering and death are are, are accidents. Oops, it shouldn't have happened. There could have been another way. You know, something didn't work out in God's plan. Otherwise, the heart of the gospel needs to be set aside in the interest of this fairy tale. But the reality is that Jesus' suffering and death were no accidents. They were at the root of God's perfect plan to save sinners from our own just death and punishment. How did He do that? He sent His Son as a substitute sacrifice to take our place so that justice would be paid for our sins. If Jesus walked the road to glory, and it went through suffering, why do followers of Jesus think there's any other way? Paul the Apostle uh, says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. There's no shortcut to greatest glory, which is resurrection. And Paul knows it, and he says, I want to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, earlier in, in, the, in the Bible, at least, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said this, um, starting in verse 10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that His life may also be revealed in our mortal body. We who are still alive are always being given over to death, so that what? Jesus' life may be revealed. It's astounding. When he, later in 2 Corinthians, as I mentioned already, uh, lists all the ways he's suffered, I can't help thinking of the guy in the Allstate commercial. He actually has a name, I found out. Uh, for, for a character in a commercial to have a name is pretty remarkable. His name is Mayhem. 
And this is the guy, you might recognize the storyline, this is the guy who falls off his, the roof of his house, gets electrocuted on the way down, and then gets run over by a car in his driveway. But it's all okay, because he's got insurance. And the tagline, of course, is, are you in good hands? I could ask the same question of you this morning. Are you in good hands? When the storm of life hits, do you rest in the security of trusting a God who has given His own Son so that suffering and death do not get the final word? This is the pattern of gospel living in a broken world. This is the pattern of gospel living in following after a Savior who demonstrated this same pattern. And Jesus used this simple farming analogy, we might say garden analogy. He said a seed has to die before it can be planted and then reproduce exponentially. Death, this is the pattern of the gospel. This is why I say suffering and death are at the heart of biblical Christianity, and there is no gospel without this bad news first um, in, the, in the background. Death opens the door for new life to flourish. Paul knew that his suffering somehow enabled the life of Jesus to be more obviously, more fully, more gloriously revealed to people around him. You know, I think Christians from prior centuries got this fundamental reality a little bit more easily than we do today. Because today, our culture is all about chasing even hints and glimmers of the fountain of youth. Whatever it is, a a, a pill, a new diet plan, an exercise gadget, some technique to enhance beauty, to extend life all too often at any cost. That's our cultural background. But people as recently as 100 years ago were used to living in the uncertainty of life. You're going along one day, you get an infection, you might be dead in 10 days. You didn't have the proper antibiotics. You got cancer, and you just toughed it out until cancer got you. You had a heart attack, lie down and rest, and most people would never get up. Having babies. We saw three of them this morning. The mothers would be in serious fear of not surviving that traumatic uh, incident. No ultrasounds to tell us, them, that the babies breach, uh, that the cord is tangled around the neck. Um, just go for it. And that living in that kind of who knows if we're going to be alive in a week fueled or, or was the backdrop for, for believers in prior centuries to realize that giving one's life for the cause of the gospel in the confident hope of resurrection, I can do that. Because who knows, I don't have 40 more years to trust in here. You know, give it for Jesus who gave his life for me. Why not? But today... Forget about giving one's life for the cause of the gospel. People are worried about losing inconveniences. People are worried about, you know, schedules being disrupted, comforts and pleasures being set aside. And yet Paul, even in prison, even handcuffed, even fearing for his life on a ship near death by drowning or execution, eventually in Rome, Paul not only endures the suffering, but he sees it all as a gospel opportunity. He's pastoring everyone else on the ship. He's telling them, you need to eat something to be strong. Don't worry. Um, uh, He's protecting the others from soldiers. This is the later section that I didn't read, whose ultimate job was to make sure that no prisoners ever escaped. They were going to execute everybody after the shipwreck. And Paul says, no. (laughs) He's exerting this gospel influence 
even as he's fearing for his own life, or, or, or not fearing necessarily, but aware that his own life might end at, at any day. And one of the things he says to the soldiers deserves some extra attention. Secondly, freedom and sovereignty. Here's, here's the setup, okay? Um, in the middle of the chapter, the section I read, the storm is raging out of control. They start lowering anchors one at a time, just so the ship drags and slows down a little bit, and when that tore off, they'd lower the next anchor. They're throwing cargo overboard. This was their livelihood. But now it's about survival, and when they throw tackle overboard, the, the ropes and the pulleys and the equipment, it's a true sign of desperation because if they survive this storm, there's no way they can sail the ship. They're just bobbing out in the open ocean. They're doing everything possible right now to just stay alive. Verse 20 says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Despair. Perfect time for Paul to preach a little sermon. <laughs> like a good preacher, he, he looks for any opportunity to open his mouth and, and point people to Jesus. And of course, he, he can't resist a little, I told you so, to begin I told you we should stay in Crete for the winter. This could have been avoided. But then he shares this in verses 23 and following. Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. And then he says to the guys, So keep up courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. And yet, a little while later, in the middle of the night, these sailors have this, uh, the, the presence of mind to check how deep the water is. I don't know how they did it back in the day. And they're fearing, because the, the waters are getting shallower, they're fearing that land is close and some rocks sticking out of the, uh, the water might dash the ship to pieces. And the sailors try to escape on the lifeboat. And Paul says this in verse 31. He said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Are you scratching your head with me? Huh? <laughs> God promised Paul total protection. I have given you the lives of all who sail with you. And yet here are a bunch of guys that could ruin everything. As if God would get put in the awkward position of having to say, yeah, I never thought of that, Paul, sorry. I, I, I never thought these guys would pull off a, a something like that, so I promised you, but, you know, I, I didn't, it didn't occur to me to account for that possibility, as, as if God in His sovereign, almighty will would be caught by surprise. So He promises that everyone's going to survive, and yet here's Paul saying, unless these guys stay with the ship... Uh, we're going to die. How do we reconcile these two? I'd start by saying there's no disconnect between these statements. God is totally in control. He's sovereign. And humanity's decisions matter on a day-to-day -day detailed basis. And we need to affirm and realize two parallel truths in this, okay? One, you are not so free that you can determine the outcome of your life. You are not so free that you can determine the future. As in Back to the Future, where the doctor says, you know, Marty, your future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. Not the case. 
you're not so free that you can determine your own future. And secondly, nor is the future so determined that your choices don't matter. Total freedom and fatalism, those are the extremes. And, and, and what many people do to, to make this intellectually um, acceptable is, well, God can't be complete in complete control and um, humanity to have free will. And so it must be one or the other. Because if he's in complete control, I'm just a robot. And if I'm in complete control, that he can't tell me what to do. That's what tends to be more intellectually satisfying in today's culture. But what that choice means is a choice of the extremes, total freedom or fatalism. And practically speaking, picking one of them just doesn't work. So total freedom. If, if you were so free that you could determine your own future, do you know the question that we should ask people who say that? How's that working for you? <laughs> how, long it, how come it's taken so long to determine your future? Because right now you don't seem too happy. You seem to be wanting a future other than uh, the present that you're experiencing now. You know, better relationships, more money, better health, uh, better circumstances, better friends, you know. Uh, how's that going for you? And, and from a different angle, if you pair absolute freedom with the, the, the sinfulness of the human heart, you're headed for disaster. And then if you multiply that by how many competing selves in the, in the world that want and demand fulfillment according to their own choices, you got a mess on your hands. Not everybody can have what they want. And that self-fulfillment drive is becoming epidemic in our younger generations, thinking that we can have it all and not worry about the cost. The reality that, crops in, uh, that creeps into our lives is after a few decades of life, I think most of you uh, my age and older would agree, after a few decades, everyone comes to realize how much of life is outside of our influence, let alone control. We are not the master of our own destiny. We don't determine our own futures. You cannot become whatever you want to be, as motivational speakers might tell our eight-year-olds. It doesn't mean that opportunity's not there, but your freedom isn't that good in in the choices that you make to determine your own future. On the other hand, if you're a fatalist, then you say, well, what's the point of making any decisions? What's the point of, um, of planning, of saving, of, of eating healthy food, of exercising? Because what's going to happen is going to happen. I'll eat bacon all I want, and I'll, I might live to 105. You know, what's the point? Um, the fatalist, if he or she is consistent, it goes to that extreme, um, but neither does that make sense as a valid, balanced principle for life. The Bible affirms this balance. God's sovereign will is in effect. He accomplishes what He desires according to His perfect wisdom. He cannot be thwarted. He is not surprised and, not or, and your choices matter. You are free. Your decisions are relevant. They don't force God's hand they don't catch him by surprise because he knows all, but you still exercise free will, both and at the same time. We can't explain it, exactly how it works. But we would say, according to Scripture, God will bring salvation to certain people through faith in Jesus Christ, and you're supposed to open your mouth and tell your friend, neighbor, coworker about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's sovereignty in salvation and there's the call to share the gospel. 
Is God in control? Absolutely. Are we called to exercise human responsibility? No doubt about it. Both and at the same time. Because God almost always chooses to use His people, the church, in our little decisions of life to accomplish His greatest purposes. That's part of the miracle of Christianity. Why me? Paul says, who is equal to such a task? Who is competent for such calling? It's not him. It's not us. It's not me. It's God using us. And it's no less true on a ship tossed around the Mediterranean as it is today in our lives. Lastly, salvation. I I pointed out earlier that Luke, the author of Acts, goes into all this detail about this adventure on the high seas. And one of the literary signs that we find in these verses gives us a a sense of why this was so important that he included all these details. Uh, It's the Greek word, which is the original language of the New Testament. It's the Greek word sozo, which means to save, or in its passive form, to be saved. It shows up five different times between verse 20 and, and verse 44. This account is about salvation. Now, that word can simply, plainly mean to rescue or to deliver. It doesn't only have a spiritual salvation context. But pair that key word with the big picture of what's going on here, and and we, we wonder, does this theme of being saved from the water or through the water, does that have any familiarity from our Bible story background? We can go back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, turn to chapter 6. And we'll find Noah and his family and the animals in the ark being saved, delivered, rescued through the water, from the water, the floods. We could turn to Exodus chapter 14, where we'd find the Israelites fleeing from slavery to Egypt. And as they get into the desert with the Egyptian army pursuing, the Lord parts the Red Sea, enables Israel to walk through on dry ground, and then the walls come crashing down just in time to catch the army, destroying them. Israel saved, rescued, delivered through the water and from the water because the seas to the Jewish people were fearful, dark, chaotic, unknown, death-producing. Last uh, account is the account of Jonah, which has even more similarities. A big destructive storm, fearing for their lives, sailors throwing everything overboard, and everyone saved in the end. But there's one big distinction. The Apostle Paul is not Jonah. Jonah is part of what they throw overboard because he knows he's the reason for the storm. He's guilty of running away from the Lord. He's in defiance, and God is chasing after him to get his attention. He was running away from God's calling on his life to bring the gospel to foreigners, namely the people of Nineveh, which was the capital of the greatest superpower empire at the time called Assyria. And Paul, in great contrast, is in chains because he's obeying the calling of God to bring the gospel to foreigners, namely Rome, which was the center of the greatest superpower empire the world knew at that time, the Roman Empire. There are parallels, but one is obeying God and one is disobeying God. And we ask, as we look at the Apostle Paul, how can he stay so calm in the face of unjust imprisonment, death by drowning, and the centurion's sword? How can he think of others and pastor them when his own skin is at risk? For the same reason, you and I can dispel fear when your life 
is about to be shipwrecked. When the storm of life hits, when there doesn't seem to be any way to fix everything that is wrong and broken about your life, Paul believed, this was the key, that anything life could throw at him was nothing compared to what the Father threw at Jesus in his experience on the cross of Calvary. Jesus endured the real storm of death. Jesus endured the real destruction of the cross. It didn't just kill him. It separated him from the fellowship that he enjoyed with the Father from all eternity past. It hollowed him out spiritually. The cross drowned him in the sin of all of his people, past, present, and future, as he swallowed the righteous wrath of the Father that our sins deserve. This is why Jesus called himself in Matthew chapter 12, the one greater than Jonah. It's not just the the, the story in parallel. Jonah was thrown into the storm so that others might be rescued. Is that noble? Not really, because he was the reason for the storm. He was guilty. But Jesus was thrown into the storm of the cross, though he had done nothing wrong. And unlike Jonah, he's not rescued. He pays the ultimate price, not just of physical death, but of spiritual and eternal death, going through hell on the cross so that you and I might be spared that spiritual and eternal death as we trust in him. Are you in a storm right now? Would you say, I'm about to, or I have been shipwrecked? Bad diagnosis, financial crisis, broken relationship, unsatisfying relational status, spiritual emptiness that that probably characterizes 95% of the storms of life, the shipwrecks that we might go through. You can't avoid these storms. They will eventually come. But when they come, Let them drive you to greater and richer faith in the Lord of the storm, who is also the Lord of the calm. Let them remind you that the worst storm that ever afflicted any human being was directed at God the Son, Jesus, on the cross. And look to resurrection, which tells you that even if the storm wins a battle by causing loss, and leaving you in suffering, and even bringing you to death, that Jesus has already won the war. And he promises on the last day when he comes again that he will make all things new. This is what we sung. When darkness seems to hide his face, when the circumstances of life make you think, where is God? Where has he gone? Has he forgotten about me? When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor, who is that? Jesus, the solid rock, the sure foundation. My anchor holds within the veil. Let that be our hope this day. Let's pray. Lord, life's stormy. Today might be gorgeous, but so there's so many here. A sunny day is in great contrast to the clouds of pain and conflict and suffering. In every high and stormy gale, Jesus, be our anchor. Be our firm foundation. 
All other ground is sinking sand. But you, Lord Jesus, never move. Your promises never fail. Resurrection, in the end, makes all things new. Give us that faith to trust in you, Jesus. Amen.